All right, everybody. Today I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Uh, Bob Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal uh, did his medical training at NYU, subsequently his uh, residency training at GW down in DC, uh, where he stayed on faculty um, up until the year 2000 when he came here to uh, University of Maryland. He is um, a professor of emergency medicine uh, and the director of the hyperbarics and a very, very uh, knowledgeable man on, on the topic on which he's speaking, which is uh, the critical role of oxygen um, in critical care. Uh, he's done numerous uh, animal studies um, and other uh, studies and publications on the topic, uh, many of which have been cited by pretty much all the major journals. Um, and uh, so it's a real pleasure to have him here today. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. And for those of you that didn't know Mike when he was a resident, he was really a good resident too, so just so you should know that most of the time. If any of you want to hear stories, talk to me afterwards. Um, I am the director of the hyperbaric unit, and this is not going to be a hyperbaric talk. We're not talking about hyperbaric. There will be one little reference to it that, in terms of it, but it really has nothing to do with hyperbaric medicine. Um, I just want to say I have no conflicts. I do breathe oxygen every day, but I don't get any money for it. I wish I did. Um, and our support for the studies that we're going to talk about, at least at the beginning, are NIH. What I want to do actually is give, start out with a, a clinical case scenario, and this is probably an older clinical case scenario, go into some of the basic work we did and then talk about what's really being done now in terms of clinical care and clinical studies about the use of oxygen in different types of critical care. Um, this, let's go back about 10 years or so, and this could have been a very typical situation. 46-year-old cardiac arrest victim brought into the hospital. Um, well, what's not typical is that there was a successful emergency department resuscitation. But the patient remained comatose after there. The patient was intubated, um, controlled ventilation, and the initial blood gas was 7.28, PCO2 of 51, PO2 of 465. At the time, when, you know, when I first started talking about this, people would have high-fived each other. They had resuscitated this person. They would have been really proud of themselves that they could oxygenate this person so well that had been without oxygen for a long time. And they would have, um, you know, sort of gone away. This is in the days prior to hypothermia, and we may be in the days post-hypothermia now. But um, and that's what they would have done. So we took a look at this is back when I was at GW actually it was a while ago and we looked at patients that underwent emergency department um, airway control and what we if for 108 patients in a row what we found is that of the 108 patients that were intubated this is the time when the paramedics did not intubate in the streets about 37 percent survived the hospital discharge and of those 40 patients um, 23 or 58 percent of them were significantly hyperoxic on their first post-resuscitative blood gas, which averaged about 365 millimeters of mercury. The second blood gas wasn't recorded immediately, but was recorded about four and a half hours after the first blood gas, and 16 of the 23 patients who had been initially hyperoxic remained hyperoxic um, with a range of 166 to 610. We were especially proud of the 610 at the time of the second blood gas. And normoxic blood gases were recorded in 19 patients, an average of 19 hours, after the initial blood gas. So patients, many of them who were intubated for whatever reason, we actually excluded patients that had carbon monoxide poisoning because they're supposed to be hyperoxic, um, stayed hyperoxic for a long, long period of time. And it just wasn't something that anybody paid attention to. Um, in the United States yearly, there's about 250,000 patients that undergo cardiac arrest and survive at least to hospital admission. Um, 
we know that there's significant neurologic impairment among most of these people that survive. If they get hypothermia, they don't get hypothermia, there's still going to be some degree of neurologic impairment. Prior to 2010, the American Heart Association recommended 100% oxygen during CPR, but they had no mention of monitoring of PaO2 after restoration of spontaneous circulation. And so based on the fact that there were concerns about hyperoxia causing oxidative damage to the brain, um, our lab tested the hypothesis that normoxic reperfusion or rapid lowering of the oxygen after resuscitation from cardiac arrest would modify and lessen the neurologic injury after cardiac arrest. In order to sort of understand what we're thinking, you sort of have to understand what happens to oxygen in the body. And under normal situations, most of oxygen is paired up and becomes, um, uh, becomes is excreted as water. That's about 99%. There's a certain amount of it, though, that goes on to form oxygen-free radicals, such as the superoxide radical or the peroxide uh, uh, my mind is blocking on me. Anyway, but th these are free radicals that go on to damage brain lipids, brain proteins, things like that. So when you form these free radicals, the uh, peroxynitrite, that was the word I was looking for, um, these things go on to oxidize lipids, proteins, DNA, glutathione, and what they cause, if they're in excess, they cause ionic dyshomeostasis, one of my favorite words, by the way, enzyme dysfunction, metabolic inhibition, Lots of bad things in the brain can happen if you have too much free radical production in the brain or oxidative stress. What our lab has found, and what a no number of other labs has found, is that after cardiac arrest and resuscitation, the brain tends to form more of these free radicals and tends to cause more lipid oxidation or oxidation of brain lipids because there is more of what we call oxidative stress. And if you take animals that undergo a 10-minute cardiac arrest and a reperfusion for up to 24 hours, what you find is that as soon as the end of a 10-minute cardiac arrest, you have about a quadrupling of the amount of brain lipid oxidation, and this high level of oxidative damage to the brain persists for up to 24 hours after resuscitation from cardiac arrest. So the question then becomes, if you have this oxidative damage to the brain that happens after cardiac arrest, so let's just talk about ischemia reperfusion because we're going to talk about other types of ischemia reperfusion later on. What happens if you increase the amount of oxygen delivered? Everybody resuscitates somebody. Everybody who gets CPR gets 100% oxygen. In the pre-hospital setting, for example, if you know how ambulances work, they have the choice of giving you room air or oxygen. There's really no oxygen mixers or anything like that. So everyone that's resuscitated is getting 100% oxygen. So what happens if you increase the amount of oxygen that you're delivering after cardiac arrest and reperfusion? So you increase your oxygen, you would suspect you would increase the amount of free radicals, hydroxyl radical peroxynitrite. You would assume that you would see increased amount of oxidized lipids and proteins, and you would see more damage to the brain. This is what we supposed. What we found was very similar to this. First of all, if you actually measure brain oxygen um, after cardiac arrest and resuscitation in an animal model, what you find, actually it's interesting because the tissue oxygen in the brain is in, in Intraparenchymal is actually fairly low. You're looking at it's about 20 millimeters of mercury. During cardiac arrest, right here, if I can get the pointed work, it goes down fairly low. And if you follow the red line here, what you see is after reperfusion, and if you keep an animal on 100% oxygen for a period of time, the oxygen in the brain goes way up and stays up for a prolonged period of time. If, on the other hand, you reperfuse the animal with uh, breathing room air or low levels of oxygen, what you do is you maintain oxygen in the brain similar to the oxygen levels in the brain you had prior to cardiac arrest and re resuscitation.
So what happens then if you do, if you have a group of animals that you reperfuse with 100% oxygen, and you have a group of animals you reperfuse just with room air, and what you find is that you have increased damage to, damage to brain lipids if you reperfuse with 100% oxygen. These are animals that underwent 10 minutes of cardiac arrest and reperfusion, and we looked at free radicals, or we looked at uh, lipid oxidation in their brain two hours after resuscitation. These are the control animals that did not undergo cardiac arrest. These are the animals that underwent cardiac arrest and were reperfused with just, and they were resuscitated and they were just breathed with 21% oxygen. And these are animals that received 100% oxygen for at least an hour after cardiac arrest. And you can see there's a tremendous increase in the amount of lipid oxidation in those animals that received 100% oxygen. But it's not just lipids, interestingly enough, that are oxidized. Brain proteins are oxidized, too. This is a stain where the green looks at the amount of oxidized protein in the brain. And this is a non-ischemic animal. This is a, an animal resuscitated, reperfused with room air, and this is an animal reperfused with 100% oxygen. I think you can appreciate the amount of difference you have in oxidation of brain proteins in addition to lipids that are increased after hyperoxic reperfusion. One of the particular enzymes that our lab was interested in was pyruvate dehydrogenase, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to drag you back to biochemistry and the Krebs tricarboxylic acid cycle. However, if you're like me, you remember the pyruvate dehydrogenase leads to the Krebs cycle. And the Krebs cycle doesn't really matter, it's just a big circle and ATP comes out the other end. So let's not, let's not think about all those intermediaries. But pyruvate dehydrogenase, like a lot of other enzymes in the brain, is very, very susceptible to oxidative damage. And these, the, the staining of these neurons, of these individual neurons reflects, the intensity of the staining reflects the amount of healthy pyruvate dehydrogenase is in this neuron. If you see a control animal here, you have the, the, whole, uh, the whole cell is filled with uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase as it at 10 minutes cardiac arrest. By two hours of reperfusion, however, and certainly by 24 hours of reperfusion, you see marked degradation in the amount of pyruvate dehydrogenase in the brain. Why is that important? First of all, I didn't lie to you, the Krebs TCA cycle, it's a big circle there. I don't remember any of the intermediaries. You shouldn't have to either. So, but pyruvate dehydrogenase is key here because what it is, is it's, it's the turn-on, turn-off key between aerobic and anaerobic metabolism. If pyruvate dehydrogenase is active, glucose goes to pyruvate, to acetyl-CoA, goes into the TCA cycle, boom, and out comes ATP. If pyruvate dehydrogenase, however, is not active, then it has a tendency to shift towards anaerobic metabolism with the production of lactate and the decrement in the production of ATP. So what happens when you add extra oxygen to the system? When you have that, you form your peroxynitrite, your hydroxyradical. It acts on pyruvate dehydrogenase. It's just like this, by the way, in the cells. Don't worry. It looks exactly as <laughs> if the pyruvate dehydrogenase is decreased. This tends to decrease the amount of pyruvate that goes to acetyl-CoA and tends to increase the lactate in the brain. At least that's what we suppose. And if you increase oxygen more, it's going to that it should further decrease it. So what happens when you actually measure this in the brain? Now, this is a, a stain that actually looks in the hippocampus of, uh, of the dog's brain at the amount of pyruvate dehydrogenase. And each dot there is a healthy pyruvate dehydrogenase molecule or a cell that has healthy pyruvate dehydrogenase. And the most, the areas of the brain that seem to be the most sensitive to ischemia reperfusion are the CA1 and the CA3 regions of the hippocampus. If you look at the sham animal over here, you can see there's a healthy amount of these black dots all through the CA1 and the CA3 region.
And if you look at an animal that is resuscitated after cardiac arrest and then given just room air, you can see that although it's a little less healthy than the sham, there's still a fair number of black dots there. Whereas if you look at an animal that got hyperoxic reperfusion here, you can see that the black dots are virtually eliminated. We have numbers to go along with this, but I thought it would make more sense to look at the pictures than to follow the numbers. Suffice it to say that repeatedly when we saw animals that received cardiac arrest and resuscitation with 100% oxygen, the, there was significant damage to the pyruvate dehydrogenase. As a result of that, as we predicted, um, for those animals that received 100% oxygen, the brain lactate was elevated. Now this sort of goes along against everything we've ever been taught because if you have lactic acidosis, they always teach you to think of the things that caught, at least they did when I was a resident. I don't know what they teach you anymore. But um, you know, you look for things like hypoperfusion, hypoxia, um, all those things. And you know, the, the typical thing, especially if you have a person in shock, is to give them oxygen, you give them fluids, you try and reperfuse. So what we're saying to you here is that after an ischemia reperfusion event, if you give too much oxygen, you can actually increase and worsen lactic acidosis in the brain. It's not intuitive, but it's true. Um, more importantly than, you know, than what happens to the, lact to the lactate and dehydrogenase is what actually happens in the brain itself. And let's just look at one of these pictures. This is, once again, a control hyperoxic and normoxic animals. And each of these black dots here is a silver stain, which shows a healthy neuron. If this is a non-ischemic control animal, and this is a normoxic animal, you can see they greatly resemble each other. There's a lot of healthy neurons. If you take this hyperoxic perfused animal here, however, what you see is you see tremendous dropout of neurons, and you actually lose neurons in the brain just because the basis of oxygen is the only difference between the animals. But finally, probably the most important thing is not really whether you have neurons, you know, what your lactic acid is or not, but it's, I mean, do you have clinical brain damage? I mean, if somebody told me you're going to lose 10% of your neurons, but it's not going to affect the way I think or the way I act, you know, it's probably not a great idea, but, you know, you wouldn't be that upset about it. We actually did a, a clinical neurologic, um, what we call neurologic deficit score in these animals. We woke them up at 24 hours. We had two blinded examiners that would examine these dogs using a 4 to 30 point system. And then we would put the animals to sleep very quickly. And then we would be able to, you know, compare how they did neurologically. And we looked at five areas, we looked at the level of consciousness, respiratory pattern, cranial nerves, motor and sensory function and behavior. And as much as we don't like to injure animals, I mean, we use dogs for these studies. And one of the advantages of doing behavioral studies on dogs, I think most people know what dogs are like when they're acting normally, when they're acting abnormally. I've also worked with rats and pigs and things like that. And very frankly, if a pig is acting abnormally, I don't know what that means. Um, but, you know, this was helpful to us in our, in our exam, and it was a very short period. So if you take these animals and you look at the neurologic outcome uh, with hyperoxia versus normoxia, as you go from zero to 100%, you have worsening neurologic outcomes. So there was a significant difference, a significant improvement in the clinical neurologic outcome in the animals that were normoxic resuscitation versus hyperoxic. And you have to ask yourself, what, what does this mean, a 58 versus a 45? All these animals were injured. Um, animals in the 50 to 60 range, although they would breathe spontaneously, would lie on their side. Some of them would have stereotypical running motions, and they really wouldn't be responsive. When you get down to these animals down here that are more in the 30 range, they would respond to some stimuli. Many times they would try and stand, you know, some successfully, some unsuccessfully, but there was a marked difference. So this is not just a um, statistical difference, but it was definitely a difference you can see when you looked at the animals. Okay, so here comes the question. 
how do we translate what we did here into what we can do for people? And remember, what we did is we had two, an two animals. We had 100% auction, 21% auction. And you can't do that in people because, first of all, these people are sick. And, you know, if you give people 21% oxygen, just 21% oxygen straight, you know that they're going to be hypoxic. And I can tell you without going into it that hypoxia is probably just as bad or worse than hyperoxia. So you want people to be normoxic, but you don't necessarily want to give them 21% oxygen. So we created a post-resuscitated oxygenation protocol where the hyperoxic animals received 100% oxygen for, for one hour after resuscitation followed by blood gas adjustments versus a group that we adjusted rapidly with pulse ox. We would put a pulse ox on the animal, and as soon as they were resuscitated, we would turn the, the O2 down to 50%, and we would go down 5% every minute till we started to desaturate. With that, we were successful getting animals in the 80 to 110 range. None of the animals became hypoxic, and we were able to rapidly correct any hyperoxia. Um, this just gives you an idea of the difference between the blood gases in the animals that were hyperoxic, um, oftentimes the PO2s would be in the 3-400 range versus the animals that were, that were rapidly dialed down when we measured their blood gases. They never really got to a hyperoxic state. Um, this is what happened to the, uh, the brain neurons. Let's look at the lower graph here. This is the hyperoxic group. This is the sham group that received no, um, uh, that received no cardiac rest. And this is what we call the oximetry group, the group that was rapidly titrated down. And each of these, this is what's called a fluoro-jade-B state. Each of these uh, neurons you see here is a damaged neuron. So you notice that there are no damaged neurons in the sham animal, tremendous number of damaged neurons in the hyperoxy animal, but very, very many less in the oximetry animal, suggesting that this is a viable way of correcting oxygenation. I'm not going to go there. And more importantly, when you look at the clinical outcome, you see these are the hyperoxic animals on the right and the, and the oximetry-guided animals on the left, and interestingly, when you look at these, there are six of the animals in the oximetry group that have better neurologic outcome than any of the animals in the hyperoxic group, suggesting this is a very viable way of dealing with uh, cardiac arrest and resuscitation. However, the best laid plans of mice and dogs sometimes don't pan out when you take them to humans. And a study was published last December, actually, by a group that looked at post-resuscitation oxygen titration in the field. And this was called the hyperoxic therapy or normoxic therapy after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, or the hot or not protocol. They probably spent more time thinking of the name than they did doing the study. And this was prospectively comparing titrated and standard oxygen therapy in adults in the pre-hospital setting, status post VF, VT, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. They had sort of a unique way of titrating the oxygen, which didn't really use oxygen mixers, but they, they had a way of doing it. Unfortunately, what they found was they, they received hypoxic values for um, PO2s measured in seven of the eight titrated and three of the nine standard care patients in the pre-hospital setting. In hospital, once they got them into the hospital, however, they would use blood gases, more advanced equipment. They had good separation of O2 exposure between the groups without increased hypoxic events. And this was actually stopped by their data and safety monitoring board, and they came to the conclusion the safe delivery of titrated oxygen in the pre-hospital setting is not feasible. The more and more I think about it, the more and more I think that that's probably true. 
Um, for any of you that have ever ridden in an ambulance or seen what people have to do when they're doing out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, there are 8,000 things going on. And when we did this in the lab, we sat there in a control lab, somebody with a stopwatch, somebody with a little piece of paper writing down the PO2s, and to think of two paramedics in the back of the, with everything else going on saying, okay, turn it down to 45%, turn it down is really kind of hard. The other thing is, is you would have to equip every advanced life support with a way of titrating oxygen. And the fact is that that would probably change all of the systems that we have here, and I'm not sure it's, it's really doable. So is there clinical evidence? So that's really the end of the animal stuff, for those of you that don't like animal work. But is there clinical evidence for worse outcomes with hyperoxic resuscitation? In fact, there is, or there, there has been. The first paper that came out was published in JAMA in 2010. This was by a group in New Jersey. Now, we realize that people in New Jersey are slightly different from the rest of the country, so we have to take everything we say with a grain of salt. Anybody from New Jersey here? Okay, well, you, you'll back me up on this, right? Okay. So, Hyperoxia. Hyper, okay. Yeah, there's lower oxygen there because of all the, um, never mind. Um, anyway, this is a, actually a superb paper from a group, uh, led by a guy by the name of Kilgallen, which associated the level of oxygen, there the highest blood gas, I think this one was actually the initial blood gas um, in the ICU after cardiac arrest with the ultimate in-hospital death. And what they found when you look at this is that there was a greater in-hospital death for those people that had a hyperoxic um, initial blood gas. Now, there's a lot of difficulties with this patient, a lot, of or with this, a lot of difficulties I have with this paper, not the least of which is there was no standardization of when the blood gas was. They had very artificial levels of what they considered to be hyperoxia. But the fact is that there, there was a good correlation and sort of backs up what, we, what we've been trying to say. Because of a lot, actually, we were quoted pretty extensively in this paper, but a lot, because of that and because of the pre-hospital work, the, the in-hospital work that's being done, in circulation in 2010, um, the statement came out that animal data suggests that ventilation with 100% oxygen immediately following cardiac arrest worsens short-term neurologic outcome when compared to ventilation titrated to achieve pulse oximeter reading between 94 and 96%. And their statement was, provided appropriate equipment is available, once ROSC is achieved, adjust the FiO2 to the minimum concentration needed to achieve arterial oxyhemoglobin saturation greater than 94% with the goal of avoiding hyperoxia while ensuring ac adequate oxygen delivery. And I think the key here is when appropriate equi equipment is available. And I would maintain that in this day and age, that equipment is available in the hospital, probably not available in the pre-hospital. Okay, what else have we learned in the last few years about hyperoxia? Well, there's been a number of papers that have supported Kilgannon's initial paper, including Kilgannon's second paper, which was published in circulation in 2011. And they looked at it a little bit differently. What they found was a dose-dependent relationship with the highest, between the highest PO2 measured in 24 hours in mortality. Jans in critical care medicine in 2012 increased mortality and neurologic deficit in the pre even in the presence of hypothermia, suggesting that, high, that normoxic resuscitation is additionally beneficial to temperature maintenance. And Elmer in 2014 found mortality associated with severe but not moderate, hyper moderate hyperoxia. That's wonderful, isn't it? Except for the fact that there's now almost an equal number of patients that found, a number of studies that found absolutely no correlation between hyperoxia and um, neurologic outcome after cardiac arrest. Belomo in critical care in 2011 looked at 125 ICUs. IL critical care resuscitation in 2011, and I can't even pronounce the last one, in 2014, all of them found no correlation between the two of them. So the question comes up, you got conflicting results, you got the same patients, despite my crack about New Jersey, they're pretty similar to the rest of the world. Um, the, 
why are we seeing why are we seeing conflicting results between these studies? And I think there's a lot of reasons. One of them is because there's an arbitrary definition of hyperoxia. Um, in Kilgannon's first paper, he defined hyperoxia as greater than 300 millimeters of mercury. Of mercury. <clears throat> and what is it about 299 that makes it different from 301? But it was at that level that a lot of the, a lot of the studies actually looked at this. Some of them looked at, uh, at hyperoxia as a continuous variable. And I'm not a statistician, but there are definitely different ways of looking at this thing when you, when you compare the two. There was, no core, there was no standardization of the timing of blood gas measurements. Uh, some looked at the first, some looked at the highest, some looked at the worst. And the first could have been 10 hours or 12 hours after admission. Now, they, in Kilgannon's first paper, they looked at the first blood gas when they went to the ICU. And we know, like in our hospital, I assume in other hospitals, ICU admission is often difficult because you're full and patients hang out in the emergency department, but they would not look at that patient until they physically were in the ICU. So that in and of itself is not controlled for. These were all retrospective studies. There was no standardized resuscitative protocols. We don't know, for example, if all of them used hypothermia. If not, whether or not they had cardiac cath available to them, what the transport time was. And I think this is reflected by the fact that there's a wide range of in-hospital mortality between centers between 41 and 74 percent. So there's a lot of difference between the, the, the groups there. So I think this what the stress is, is really the need for prospective studies. There is at least one of those prospective studies which is being done now, interestingly, by Kogannon's group. And hopefully we'll find out the results of that sometime soon. Okay, so hyperbaric, so hyperbaric slipped out of my mouth. I'm sorry. Uh, so um, cardiac arrest is not the only type of ischemia reperfusion we deal with. And I mean, there's a lot of other where the question of oxygenation comes up. What about stroke, for example? Stroke, especially now in the days of TPA, is certainly an ischemia reperfusion event. Early animal studies, and these are not from our lab, um, looked at. Uh, Reperfusion and the, the um, giving normal baric oxygen, whether or not it uh, it was beneficial, and this is a pretty standard way of looking at outcome after a rack cardiac arrest model, where the white areas in the brain at uh, either two hours or um, you know it, excuse me 24 or like 48 hours is area that is infarct that is an infarct area of the brain. So you see in this animal that was a three-hour control where it did not receive any extra oxygen, there was a tremendously large infarct in the brain. In this animal, on, on the other hand, which received normal baric oxygen for three hours, you see a much smaller area of infarction, suggesting that the oxygen that was delivered was able to maintain viability of the ischemia, of the ischemic, or at least the penumbral area, until such time as reperfusion could occur. So there was a, a lot of impetus at that point to give additional oxygen to stroke patients on the basis of preclinical studies. What about clinical studies? In 2014, probably one of the best studies to date, or one of the largest at least, was done by Rincon and published in Critical Care Medicine. This is a retrospective study of 2894 patients over a five-year period at 84 United States ICUs. They looked at all types of stroke patients, and I think this is actually one of the difficulties with the study. They looked at ischemic stroke, subarachnoid hemorrhage, or intracranial hemorrhage. All these patients were ventilated. Um, they defined hyperoxia as greater than 300, and 16% were hyperoxic. Hypoxic was less than 60, and 46% uh, were hypoxic in the first 24 hours. They found that hyperoxia, the in-hospital mortality was 1.7 times greater for hyperoxia compared to normoxic patients, and it was 1.3 higher than hypoxic patients, and their conclusion was hyperoxia was independently associated with in-hospital mortality. What they didn't do is compare um, 
you know, normoxia to, uh, to hypoxia, but I think that you would find also that normoxia was the best thing there also. Um, there have been other studies which show a little bit different, different things. This is from New Zealand, from 129 ICUs in New Zealand from 2000 to 2009. And these are all ischemic strokes, so unlike the, the previous study, I mean, it's a much tighter group. The primary outcome was the odds ratio for in-hospital mortality associated with the, quote, worst PaO2. And a large percentage of these guys died in the hospital. And they found no association between the worst PaO2 and mortality, the length of stay, or the likelihood of discharge home. Um, what about myocardial infarction? Uh, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of buzz about this back in the fall. For any of you that may have been, gone to the American Heart Association meeting, um, this is the air versus oxygen in the acute myocardial infarction study or the AVOID study. I, I want to get the job of writing these names for these things because I mean, you just pick the D of myocardial. I mean, really, what are they uh, anyway? Um, so this was the AVOID study, and this is a multi-center randomized controlled trial that was designed to compare supplemental oxygen with no oxygen therapy in normoxic patients with STEMI to determine its effect on myocardial infarct size. And it was published, the initial study was published in, the, in 2012, I mean, the, how it was going to be done. So at the end of the study, what was presented this year, 638 patients were randomized, 441 of them had STEMIs, and of those 441, 218 received, received oxygen. And what they found, without going into the numbers, is that supplemental oxygen therapy in patients with STEMI but without hypoxia increased the myocardial injury, the recurrent myocardial infarction, and major cardiac arrhythmia, and was associated with larger myocardial infarct size assessed at six months. So we, there's much less stuff with, uh, um, with MI, but this is probably one of the first true prospective studies looking at that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that it has to suggest to you is that in a lot of these ischemia reperfusion, you're, you're better off keeping people in the normoxic range rather than giving supplemental oxygen when you're just, you know, if, unless there's a good reason for it. Okay, we're sitting in shock trauma right now. Uh, at least this used to be the trauma um, amphitheater. Now it's the University of Maryland, but we're still in shock trauma. And what about hyperoxia and traumatic brain injury? And I think that this is, you know, this is actually becoming a hot topic because, believe it or not, there are studies out there not only about hyperoxia but also about hyperbaric oxygen. I got a call just the other day from somebody from one of these big foundations wondering why we weren't giving people hyperoxia or hyperbaric for TBI, and I said, because it doesn't work. Um, what's the shock trauma protocol for, hyperox for oxygen after um, traumatic brain injury. And if you look at the protocol that we have here, the truth is that there is nothing mentioned about oxygenation after, after TBI. And I checked this out just like a couple weeks ago to see. And if you look back not that long ago, this was the protocol that was followed here, you know, maybe eight, ten years ago. And I, I suspect that people are lowering oxygen more rapidly now. But basically, people that received traumatic brain injury had oxygenation, which was all over the place after, after reperfusion uh, and after traumatic brain injury and not a lot of attention was paid to it. What is the effect of traumatic brain injury, on traumatic brain injury of hyperoxia? In the preclinical setting, Ed Ahn, who worked in our laboratories, now a neurosurgeon over at Hopkins, looked at, um, at rats after traumatic brain injury, and they looked at a very simple question. They reperfused some of them after TBI with 100% oxygen, some of them with room air, and then they looked at um, the amount of protein oxidation. And protein oxidation is bad. It, it makes it go back to that old pyruvate dehydrogenase thing. And in this particular stain that they have here, the darker it is, the healthier it is. And so if you look at the hyperox, the normoxic animal, 
that was a shade, excuse me, I'm saying just the opposite way. The darker it is, the, the more injured it is. If you look at the sham animal that's normoxic, you see a very faint uptake um, in the hippocampus. Whereas if you look at the hyperoxic animal that is injured, it, there is a very dark and less dark in the normoxic, suggesting you have worse protein oxidation in the animals that receive 100% oxygen after traumatic brain injury. But once again, a rat is not a human, and unfortunately, 90% of the things that have been shown to be beneficial in rats when they take into human studies don't, don't work, or if they do work, they work differently. What about in human studies? What about uh, in there? In a very early study, with early as 2004 for this, they looked at, Tolias looked at 52 patients with severe traumatic brain injury. All these people had intracranial pressure and O2 monitoring, and they had microdialysis catheters. Um, they were treated with hyperoxia for 24 hours, and they compared to 112 patients that had historical control. They found with hyperoxia, the intracranial pressure was significantly reduced and there was no change in the cerebral perfusion pressure. They found that hyperoxia lowered the lactate glucose and the lactate pyruvate ratio, suggesting that they had a, a trend towards aerobic metabolism, and they said the outcome of the treated patients improved. Um, they concluded that the results of the study support the hypothesis that normal baric hyperoxia in patients with severe TBI improves the indices of brain oxidative metabolism. Based on these data, further mechanistic studies and a prospective randomized controlled study are warranted. There have been further studies since then, and we're going to find the same type of unmatched results that we did with cardiac arrest. There have been a number of studies that suggest that TBI um, associated with the hyperoxia is associated with increased mortality in TBI. Davis in the Journal of Neurotrauma in 2009 found that the hyp hypoxemia and extreme hyperoxemia greater than 487, 486, I, I don't know, um, was associated with increased mortality and poor outcome. These were moderate to severe um, TBI patients. Dr. Brenner, who works here, um, found in shock trauma patients and published in Archives of Surgery in 2012 that hyperoxia within the first 24 hours associated with worse functional outcomes and higher mortality and severe TBI. And Rincon, that we already looked before arterial hyperoxia was independently associated with higher in-hospital mortality in ventilated patients. However, on the other side, Asher in the Journal of Neurosurgery in 2013 found that a PaO2 threshold between 250 and 486, as opposed to 487, at 72 hour associated with increased survival, and hypoxemia was associated with increased mortality. And Raj in critical care in 2013 found that hyperoxemia which they define as an AA gradient greater than 100 millimeters of mercury during the first 24 hours is not predictive of six-month mortality. So what's the answer? Um, the answer's in there somewhere. And part of the problem is, is that it's difficult to compare the studies because they're looking at different things. Um, I think there are a lot of confounders here. Um, the, the first confounder that you have with any of these studies is timing. And, part, and the timing, I think, is important because the different types of injury we have in the brain happen at different times. So the different types of injury we, we talk about, there's a lot of them. There's excitotoxicity, there's metabolic failure, there's inflammation, there's oxidative stress. And this is a cartoon which sort of shows, you know, when these things happen. So excitotoxicity or the re release of excitatory amino acids happens almost immediately after the traumatic brain injury. Um, Inflammation may be hours to days later. Apoptosis may be later than that. And there are, there's definitely a spectrum of different things that happen at different times. 
So if you give 100% oxygen here, it may interact more with the excitotoxicity process. If you give it over here, maybe it's going to interact with the inflammation process. And we have evidence, for example, that, that hyperoxy does worsen inflammation in the brain after cardiac arrest. So timing is important, and that's one of the things that was not controlled between these studies. People took the first, they took the worst, they took, you know, anything that was all over the place. And I promise you nothing about hyperbaric oxygen, but this is about hyperbaric oxygen, but it's not. Um, and the only reason I bring this up because this goes back to our dog studies where we took animals that, and resuscitated them, and instead of giving them 100% oxygen immediately, we put them in the hyperbaric chamber at one hour after reperfusion. At one hour, the blood pressure is usually stabilized. Usually what happens with blood pressure in the dog model is you, you go way up when you get the epinephrine, then it'll drop down in the, you know, the 70s and 80s, and by an hour, you're back up 90, 100, or something that is, is really much more reasonable. And so we took these animals, we put them in the hyperbaric chamber, gave them 100% O2 at three atmospheres of pressure, beginning one hour after resuscitation. And this is a map of what the um, uh, hippocampus looked like in two representative animals. And each one of these dots is a healthy neuron in the hippocampus. And you can see this is our standard, uh, excuse me, is a damaged neuron. This is our standard animals that received no hyperbaric oxygen. These are animals that received high concentrations of oxygen at, um, at beginning one hour after reperfusion as opposed to immediately after reperfusion. And we have much less injury in the hyperbaric animals. And when you compare the neurologic deficit, these are the hyperbaric animals that act, it was quite amazing, actually. Um, a lot of these animals could stand up, walk, drink, things like that. Yeah, Mike? How much atmospheric pressure? Two point, it was either 2.8 or, or 3. I don't remember exactly. Um, and compared to these animals that had significant injury. So the, the hyperbaria, I'm sure, had an effect also, but it may be that the timing had an effect. And we actually have a grant in right now to look at just that, to give animals at different times um, moderate amounts of oxygen, so not starting immediately after reperfusion, but maybe starting one hour or two hours, because I think that that's one of the things that have to come into the paradigm. We talk about oxygen, and we forget that oxygen is a drug. And like any drug, we have to give a dose of oxygen. And where does that come in, and where do we see it? We see it in several of the papers here. Um, in Davis, once again, we saw that hypoxemia and extreme hyperoxemia were associated with increased mortality and poor outcome. We see in Asher's paper that PO2 threshold between 250 and 486 was associated with increased survival. And we see in Elmer's paper that uh, mortality associated with severe but not moderate hyperoxia following resuscitation from cardiac arrest. And so maybe what we should be looking at is not whether or not to give oxygen, but how much oxygen to give and what time to administer it. And we don't really know that. Comorbidity should speak for themselves, but I mean, the, one of the other things that were not controlled in any of these studies were what the patients were like prior to the, prior to the resuscitation. We know, for example, that uh, people with diabetic, diabetics are much more likely to have worse oxidative stress than people that are non-diabetic. Older people more likely to have oxidative stress, and so these things were also not controlled in these studies. Age. Um, there was a very interesting paper that was published in the British Journal of Anesthesia last year. Um, I don't claim to read the British Journal of Anesthesia, but I did find the paper. Um, it's a nice review, actually, about the risk-benefit ratio of perioperative hyperoxia, particularly with regard to surgical site infection. And this is, a, in the, especially in the orthopedic community, this is a big question. Should they be administering extra oxygen during, um, during surgery? And what they found is the risks of extra oxygen were greatly outweighed the benefits in the very young and could affect growth and development. They found the risks greatly outweighed the benefits in the elderly 
and they found that aging increases sensitivity to oxidative stress. But in middle age, benefits of short-term perioperative O2 administration was much greater than the potential adverse effects. So similar to this, we can imagine that in critical care that, you know, extra amounts of oxygen, if you have a healthy 38-year-old who is a runner that happens to be uh, in the critical care unit for something, giving that person extra oxygen is probably going to have different meaning than giving it to his 72-year-old uh, father. I'm a 72-year-old father, maybe a runner too. Um, what this stresses, once again, is the critical need for controlled trials. And, uh, you know, I just can't stress it enough. So, conclusions. Oxygen's a drug. Don't forget that. And, you know, think about it when you administer it. Use it carefully. Know your patient. Not everyone likes a lot of oxygen. People may like it, but they don't, they don't need it. Dosage is important. The timing administration can be important. We need controlled clinical trials of oxygen usage in critical care. And I just urge you to keep on breathing. Um, I want to just acknowledge my, my experimental collaborator, especially Gary Fiscom, who is a professor of anesthesiology here. We've been working together on this for, God knows, 25, 30 years or something like that. And the other people have been you know, critical in a lot of the, the studies that we did together. Um, I have a question for you. I, they, they make me write questions, okay? So th here's a question. And anybody wants to answer? Can, okay, so, oh, come on, get that out there. What's that? That is not my question. Okay. First of all, what's that? It's Mount Everest, which this is a, this is a timely question right now, okay? Um, Mount <coughs> Everest is 29,000, remember these figures, they're going to be important for the answer, 29,028 feet, that's 8,848 meters, okay? At sea level, atmospheric pressure is 760 millimeters of mercury, 760 torr, when you want to sound really cool. Um, at base camp, which is 17,700 feet or something like that, is, which is 5,400 meters, the atmospheric pressure is 400 torr. Okay, got it? At the elevation, 8,848 meters, it's 252. And these are measured, these are actually measured, and that's important because calculated, um, calculated measurements are different. And there is something in geography which actually affects the atmospheric pressure, and that's the latitude. And the depending on the latitude, it'll change it. Oh, look, the latitude is 27.9881 degrees north. In case you want to know, this doesn't affect it, but the longitude is 86.9253 degrees east, longitude. Now, probably a lot of you don't remember the gas laws, but you remember there, there was this one thing that back in the old days, it was PV equals NRT. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? You know, pressure times volume is equal to the, the constant times Avogadro's number times temperature. Remember that? Okay. So the question I have for you is, what's the oxygen concentration at the summit? Nobody? The answer is 21%, the same as it is here. has nothing to do with any of the rest of the stuff I told you. Anyway, thank you very much for uh, listening. I'll be happy to answer any questions if anybody has, but uh, that's your oxygen question for the day. Are there any uh, studies that have been done looking at the administration of antioxidants? Oh, and, and what are the, absolutely. the outcomes of this? Um, there's been a lot of studies looking at antioxidants, and everybody was totally jazzed about them about 20 years ago. 
um, and there were, um, I don't even remember the names of the antioxidants they used, um, like Terilizad and things like that that were, and they've, they've all proved to be very bleh. And, the, you know, at least in cardiac arrest, none of them have proved out to be, be anything beneficial. Part of the problem is, is that, you know, the, the free radicals we have, they do good things too. And so you don't want to get rid of all of them, and, uh, but they have been, dis those studies have been disappointing. Okay, thanks everybody.